Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. The war in Ukraine is a war, not least, for the wheat and corn that has fed this world back to the Stone Age. Could that be a main line of the war story? The reason Putin invaded, the key to some awful consequences yet to come. Our guest, Scott Nelson, is a scholar of raw materials and food commodities over time. He says, in fact, those nutritious and shippable grains between Ukraine and Russia are very nearly the whole story, underlying Russia's long lust for empire and Ukraine's claim to its own share and its identity. What it takes to size up a food war, Scott Nelson says, is the memory and the imagination of a grain dealer. And he says the ruthless President Putin has it all. Oceans of Grain is Scott Nelson's provocative account of the history that brought us all to Ukraine. I'm asking him for the earmarks of a food war, this grain war, starting with the invasion on February 24th that doubled the price of wheat in 24 hours. Could he tell us this war as a grain story? It's hard to tell it as a war without a grain story. It's a hugely important area, right? Ukraine is the Goldilocks zone. It's a perfect balance for wheat. It's got flat plains. It's got black soil. It's got fresh water, and it's near a deep ocean port. And since 750 BC, when the Greek colonies first established themselves on the northern part of the Black Sea, it's an excellent place to deliver grain, and it's been feeding the rest of the world for a very, very long time. We now know that there are paths, Chornishlaki, uh, they're called in Ukrainian, these black paths that have been connecting the world from Sweden to Manchuria. And hmm. Ukraine is really at the center of that international trade. We know that in 2800 BC, there was grain going in both directions. There was trade going in both directions long before there were empires. And that world is been upset, really, by this conflict. I gather from you that the Arab Spring might have been the last example of a food war. At the time, we said, no, this was caused by cell phones or something. <laughs> How was that a grain war? Right. So ordinarily, wheat is 4 to $6 a bushel, and it doubled in 2011. And when it doubled, we saw all the regions in what we now call MENA, Middle East, North Africa. But uh, another way of thinking about them is the southern fringe of the Byzantine Empire, those places saw food prices increase and we saw people in the streets, people angry about the price of food. 40% of poorest people's household expenditure is for food. And almost a majority of that calorie source comes from grain. And so when grain prices go up, you see bread riots. Another way to think about Arab Spring, and in fact, many of the things that people were yelling in the streets during Arab Spring was about the price of bread. You remind us of the slogan, bread, freedom, and social justice. But the first was bread. Right. <laughs> it was number one, was bread. You can look at the French Revolution, of course, and the Russian Revolution. Both of those had a whole lot to do with the shortage of food. And even uh, the revolutions of 1848 had a lot to do with a potato famine that undermined the central basis for food for farmers all over Europe. And as those food prices go up, we see conflict. In your book, Oceans of Grain, Scott, the modern history in a certain way begins with Catherine the Great of Russia in the 1760s. And the plan was sort of simple. She was going to seize the Ukrainian fields, incredibly fertile, open fields for grain, and become an empire. And she did. Tell that story. But also, does 
Putin perhaps want to be remembered as the Catherine the Great of his time? I think so. It's not just Catherine the Great. It's also Peter the Great. It's also Ivan the Great, Ivan the Terrible. All of them had designs on the northern fringe of the Black Sea as a kind of source for Russian Empire. But it's in the 1760s that Catherine, who's influenced by the physiocrats, these French economists who argue that the source of all wealth is really the soil and from the grain production from the soil. And she has this audacious plan to expand across Ukraine, Mm. take it, seize it from the people that are there, and produce grain for the rest of the world. And it's outrageously successful. She builds the city of Odessa on that Black Sea port, and Odessa feeds the world during the wars of the French Revolution as well as uh, the Napoleonic Wars. And this foreign exchange that's provided by this grain, just as... Catherine the Great predicted, provides the wealth, the foreign exchange that Russia needs to expand across Europe Mm. and Eurasia. So Russian expansion would have been impossible, really, without this grain. Russia would have been a minor power in Europe Mm. until Catherine opened it up with the control of Odessa. Something comparable happens in the United States after our Civil War. Slavery is out. Wheat farmers never used slaves in their production, and the the expansion of the American grain product just booms competitively with Russia. Yeah, from, say, let's say the 1790s all the way through the 1860s, Russia is feeding much of Europe. And in this period, the American Civil War, from, let's say, 1820 to 1860, the biggest export is cotton. But once the war starts, cotton exports are (laughs) off limits, right? That's coming from the South, coming from slaves. And so what the U.S. does is establish four competing railroad corridors. Uh, The Union Army does this. It sponsors it in part from Chicago to New York. And those grain corridors provide a method of delivering grain to Europe. And so the United States reaches superpower status in just the way that Catherine did by seizing and controlling the plains, building a deep port, and providing oceans of grain to much of Europe. So that's a transformation that takes place in the middle of a war, which is peculiar. It's not often the case that you see drastic economic change take place during war. But that's really how the U.S. pulls itself out of this crisis, is by providing grain to Europe. Scott, what did Vladimir Putin know about commodities, but specifically about wheat and grain in the building of empires, in international competition. I mean, we've never heard that side of Putin before. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every Russian schoolchild learns about Russia's expansion and how it takes place. They learn about Odessa and Catherine the Great. Putin's master thesis was on the materials that are available in Russia and Ukraine, really the identification of those, not just grain, but also minerals, palladium, gold, those sorts of things. So he's obsessed by this, but he's also obsessed by Russian history. And Russian history is really a story about Russia making its expansion possible by expelling grain. Even the collapse of the Soviet Union which is obviously very important to Putin, can be explained in part by Russia not being able to generate as much grain as it had in the past. When this happens, the Soviet Union gives up and starts to sell oil and buy grain. All that works really well until the 1990s, uh, late 80s and early 90s. And by that point, wheat prices go up and oil prices go down. And that 
according to most Russian scholars inside Russia, is the explanation for the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this sense that Russia and uh, the USSR and the imperial Russia were on a kind of knife's edge, balanced on a knife's edge that had everything to do with its ability to produce grain is really at the top, I would say, of Putin's mind. I'm also reminded here of Tim Snyder's histories of warfare in the 20th century. Hitler's deepest drive, according to Tim Snyder, was to control the breadbasket and anticipating environmental problems, food shortages. And this is where he and Stalin fought the most vicious parts of that whole long battle. Absolutely. And the story that Hitler tells is that he's rescuing the Russian Germans, that is the Germans that moved down in the period when Catherine the Great invites them, German farmers who settle in Russia and produce grain that then Russia sells. The claim on the part of the Nazis is that they're going to rescue these Russian Germans from the Soviet Union and uh, free them. But uh, the larger geopolitical idea is to seize this land that's around the Black Sea and kind of build a base for a German empire. This almost succeeded towards the end of World War I, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, when Germany holding Russia up demands that this whole region that we now call Ukraine be turned over to Germany. And they they held it for about a year. The hope is that Germany was going to feed itself Hmm. because it was starving in World War I. So yeah, Germany very much understands the importance of this grain region. There are a lot of utopias that start with the northern part of the Black Sea, with Ukraine, and a lot of utopias that end very badly there as well. Putin, in his head, is competing with the United States or defending from the United States. Right. So before the Maiden protests, Putin wants to create a grain cartel. He's in OPEC+. Plus. They're building an oil cartel. The oil cartel makes a tremendous amount of money for Russia through the aughts and the teens. So he approaches the sort of puppet in Ukraine at the time to establish a grain cartel. The hope is that grain will be the same thing. Russia and Ukraine are competing on the world market for grain. They're competing for the same places, North Africa and the Middle East, uh, also South Korea. And that falls through in the Maiden protest. The Maiden protest, Ukraine says, no way. This is not (laughs) acceptable. We want to join the EU. We don't want to join a grain cartel with Russia. And so this is, in a way, the revenge of Putin to a certain extent. And it has been a, a tremendously successful revenge, actually, because just as long as 150 million metric tons of Ukrainian grain is blockaded in Russian ports, Russian wheat prices have doubled. Wheat prices coming from Russia have doubled. And so Russia can effectively fund this war in part by the fact that Ukrainian grain is being blocked from the world. Scott Nelson, you remind me of James Carville saying, it's the economy, stupid. No, it's the wheat, (laughs) stupid. It's the grain. You say that Catherine the Great, were she empress today, would have moved the capital of that nation to Odessa. Absolutely. In fact, she names her grandson Constantine. Her long-term dream is to control Constantinople slash Istanbul. Istanbul, of course, is at the right at the tip of the Black Sea. The fact that she doesn't get that before she dies would suggest to me that uh, Odessa would have been the final place. And actually, it's the better place for an empire. For sure, it would have looked and felt like a different Russia entirely if Catherine the Great had placed the seat of her empire in Odessa the incomparably cosmopolitan city on the Black Sea, hub of the grain traffic for starters, but boisterous in all kinds of trade, 
a great center of Jewish, cultural, and commercial life, and a gangster town as well, all of it immortalized by Isaac Babel, the greatest Russian short story writer of the 20th century, a giant I'm just discovering at long last. In his Odessa stories, Babel sets his mobster scenes in a city where you'd find, as he wrote, big-bellied bottles of Jamaican rum, oily Madeira, cigars from the plantations of Pierpont Morgan, and oranges from the groves of Jerusalem. This, said Babel, is what the foamy waves of the Odessan Sea throw onto the shore. Coming up, how the paths cut by oxen carts pulling loads of grain over the ages became the map of civilization and empires. This is Open Source. The historian Scott Nelson is telling us that the circulatory system of civilization was formed by the grain trade. Right. We now know that grain is a part of most empires. This basically storable food is crucial for creating empires. But there's some differences. There's thousands of years between being able to store grain and being able to create empires. What I'd suggest is that there are these black paths that connect grain traders that have been going on for thousands of years. And empires build themselves at the crossroads of those paths, the places where the grain is poured out to be delivered onto ships. For example? For example, Odessa or New York or Mm -hmm. Philadelphia or Baltimore. All of those are places where the grain is poured out. In the ancient world, of course, it would be uh, Rome. It would be, uh, where else? Rhodes, a place where grain comes together. The Colossus of Rhodes was actually built by grain traders, probably. Mm. Istanbul, of course, Constantinople before that, Byzantium before that, is an excellent place to tax grain. You know, you've got the Bosphorus Straits. It's just a mile across. It's a perfect place for blocking grain and taxing it. So if you follow the paths of grain, according to Parvis, you see the world very differently. Empires grow up along the corridors of grain trade, the places where it passes, the places Mm. where you can easily stop it. Speak of your man Parvis, not his real name, a millionaire communist, enormously successful in playing the market as well as analyzing it, and the creator, in some sense, of a sort of world system, a metaphysics of grain. Also the notion, which I like, that grain traders are the people who know the world. Right. So Parvis in the 1870s watches Odessa crumble in part, not crumble, but suffer from the competition from the United States that arrives in the 1860s. He watches the Panic of 1873 as a young man, and he understands that the Panic of 1873 has everything to do with this direct impingement from the United States. From 1868 to 1872, grain prices have been cut in half, and it's the biggest drop in the price of food kind of ever. This is a drastic change, and it never returns. Prices never go back up to those levels again. So this transformation, he calls it the agrarian crisis, and he becomes a Marxist. He's not happy with the Russian Empire, this brutal empire. It's most brutal at its edges, places like Odessa. That's where all the pogroms are, or many of the pogroms are, is this region. He's a Jewish grain trader, like his father and possibly brother, and he starts to see the world and see an opportunity for bringing this, humbling this Russian empire, bringing it to its knees. And 
It's in the 1880s and 1890s that he becomes a communist, a Marxist who is devoted to undermining the Russian Empire at any cost. But he's a humanist of sorts, too, in a way, and a writer. Yeah, prolific writer. I mean, he's, uh, he says that he's most moved by the Ukrainian stories of the countryside and the stories of the Chumaki, the grain traders. And he loves literature. He critiques and analyzes literature. He speaks Old Church Slavonic and Russian and German and French and at a little bit of English, his kind of understanding of the world is shaped by his time in the grain trade, but he's a kind of gifted writer, somebody who uses a lot of barnyard idioms and things like that to explain things. And his market, the people that he writes to are not elites, they're mostly to workers. He wrote in workers' magazines and things like that, newspapers. He is the person who gets Rosa Luxemburg her start in a newspaper that he set up. He's been expelled from Germany because uh, the Russians are after him. And he sets up Lorza Luxemburg as the editor of the paper that he is leaving. So yeah, he's very powerful as a writer. He says and seems to have persuaded you that grain dealers have the best news network in the world, partly through these exchanges in Liverpool and London and elsewhere. Also that they're, in some sense, the best gossips about what they see on the horizon. Examples, please. Help us think like grain dealers. If you think about grain dealers, they need to know about wars. They need to know where wars start and how long they last because grain prices go up when wars start. Revolutions, of course, have a lot to do with increases in grain prices. A newsroom in Liverpool or London or Antwerp or Rotterdam is going to be a place where a lot of grain traders gather together. They're going to make agreements basically with handshakes for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of grain shipments. And so they need to know the news. And so you walk into one of these grain trading places like the Baltic Exchange in London, and it's got all the newspapers and all the magazines nearby. The first places that have telegraphs are actually these newsrooms, not Whitehall or Washington, D.C., it's uh, the grain traders that absolutely need this information. They need the freshest as vices, as they call it. It's this kind of understanding of the world that makes the difference between wheat at $8 and wheat at $12, which is a millions and millions of dollars worth of benefit if you can be at the right place at the right time. So these people get quite disturbed German and French and other political leaders that these grain traders knew before anyone else <laughs> when there was chaos, when there was conflict, when there was trouble. I'm wondering if you can see the grain trader in Putin now, including the port control, the idea of a bridge to Crimea, right. seeing Odessa as more important strategically than Kiev, ultimately. Yeah, well, he takes Kherson first, which is an important grain port. He's just finished, I think, bombing Mariupol, which is another major grain port. He had left Odessa alone, but he's just now starting on Odessa. So it's these ports that are really, I would argue, his principal attraction. And there was recently leaked information about a general who said what the long-term demand of Russia was. And it was basically to control a corridor all around the Black Sea that starts in Crimea and heads hmm. all the way west, just 10 or 15 miles deep. But that is what Russia wants. And, uh, you know, it's it's not crazy based on sort of understanding of geopolitics. I was just going to say, does that make a halfway rational actor out of this very unlikable guy? I mean, people have wanted, to be, was he stark raving mad? Right. People from the beginning wanted that this was a war about nothing, the Seinfeld mm -hmm. War. But I wonder if this grain theory gives him a plausible, still maybe crazy, but real motive. 
it's, I think, absolutely emotive. I, I said in the book before this invasion that Russia would never be a great power without Ukraine and without the port of Odessa. Zbigniew Brzezinski said the same thing. Russia without Ukraine will never be mistaken for an empire. Russia with Ukraine is obviously an empire. Right. This is why Americans are so kind of narcissistic about this. They think it's all about NATO or they think it's all about the U.S. His security, right? Right, his security. And that's nothing to do with what's going on here. There have been, in the last 250 years, there have been 11 wars over the northern part of the Black Sea. You've got the Crimean War. You've got the, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, and eighth Russo-Turkish War. All of these conflicts are about dominating the Black Sea, which is what Russia has wanted to do for a very long time. And this is really what the USSR was about, was, was to stop this kind of imperial advance. You know, it was the Russian imperial advance as much as Germany that was behind the Bolshevik takeover. And uh, now that we're in a, a world where the Soviet experiment is over, we're back to Russian empire again. And so... I worry that's another 250 years of attempts to seize this and control this beautiful region uh, north of the Black Sea that's such a great place for food. Hmm. I just think the story about NATO and the story about legitimate cons security concerns is, frankly, uh, partly it's American narcissism, partly it's a belief that Russia cannot be an empire. We're not conditioned to think of Russia as an empire because the Soviet Union was, of course, anti-imperial for so long. But uh, Russia can be an empire, and a new Russia can expand just the way the old Russian empire did, which is by annexing territories, by violently seizing them. And we need to kind of recognize this. We need to recognize violent seizure of another place as absolutely unacceptable in the 21st century. It's almost automatic for Putin to say, the solution to my problems is to expand and take some region that's got resources. You know, Russia was held back for so long and it needs to expand. And so there is this sort of, unfortunately, belief that Russian expansion will solve all of its problems, just like the Chechnya war seemed to help, just like the mm. conflict over Crimea seemed to help. This idea that, you know, continual expansion is going to fix all of Russia's problems is... Uh, not new. It's not a Putin issue. It's a thousand-year-old problem with how it is that imperial leaders have dreamed about the future. And so we need to see the empire there. We need to see the threat of empire. We need to see the threat of expansion. And we need to kind of collectively put a stop to it. That's a major rewriting of the story, Scott Nelson. It's not about NATO. It's not even about foreign policy or geostrategic realism. It's about a peculiarly Russian thousand-year-old passion to control that flow of grain through the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. There's your story. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. I mean, <laughs> you've got so many examples of this. Uh, Prince Oleg, back before the Slavs were even really Russia, you know, nails his shield to the gates of Istanbul. The attempts by Russia to control this corridor is so important. Hmm. When Catherine the Great calls it Odessa... It's named after Odessos, which was the Greek port in the western part of the Black Sea. No one knew where it had gone exactly, where it was exactly. But that idea of kind of rebuilding an empire centered on the Black Sea has dominated the attentions of Russians for a very long time. And so I think part of it is that when we think of Russia, we think of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet Union. But when Russians think of Russia, they think of a thousand year history that has much more mm. to do with expansion and 
you know, producing these fruits of the land that are going to provide the Russian exchange that makes that expansion possible. I wonder, Scott, why didn't he tell us that? I am Catherine the Great, and that's how we built the empire. We're rebuilding it now. And look out. I think he did say it. I think he said it when he made the announcement that he was doing the police action. And behind him was the double-headed eagle of the Russian, old Russian empire and the, and the new Russia. But that double-headed eagle, the eagle that faces in two directions, mm-hmm. is, of course, the symbol of Byzantium ancient Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire. That has always been at the center of how Russia defines itself, is it wants to be the new Byzantium. It wants to be the center of the world. I want to hear more about the links between serfdom in Russia, slavery in this country, the links and differences between wheat and cotton planters, and this whole relationship with American booms in wheat and Russian booms in wheat, to be king of the wheat market. So first of all, slavery... We think about serfdom and slavery as being different institutions, and of course they are. Serfs are entitled to a portion of the land, slaves are not. But when Catherine the Great takes over the region that we now call Ukraine and starts uh, pouring wheat onto the ocean for international delivery, she also creates the Nakaz, a series of new rules for Russia, and included in those are attempts to make serfs more like slaves to make Russian serfs more like slaves in the Atlantic so that people can buy and sell them, so that that they can be separated from the land, so that they have no rights other than the right not to be beaten. So she's really kind of doubling down on this attempt to turn serfdom into something like slavery so that she can produce some surplus. And in the United States, the places that we see slavery expand to are, of course, the regions closer to the equator, where initially coffee, tobacco, and rice are produced, and then, of course, cotton. And from 1820 to 1860, it's cotton expansion that fuels the United States. The biggest U.S. export is cotton. And that world is unsettled by Mm. the war. The fear on the part of these grain traders that I call them the Boulevard Barons who are obsessed with creating grain corridors from the Midwest to the ocean to sell Europe its grain. These people believe that white Southerners who are enslavers are dangerous and that they're going to take over this really good land and use it for slavery. And they want to put a stop to that. And that's mm. that's the Republican Party, really. The financial folks that are most important in the Republican Party are these boulevard barons, David Dow's, Uh, Roosevelt, Mm. Morgan, and others are fascinated, obsessed with Western expansion. John Murray Forbes, another. And they believe that slavery is a problem, not because they dislike slavery, but because railroads don't work in slave regions. Railroads don't work because there's plenty of cotton that goes from the West to the East, but there's almost nothing that goes back over those railroads from the east to the west. And the railroad prices have to double because the cars go mm. back empty. Slave regimes don't buy things, right? They buy very few things and they don't buy much in the way of bulk. And so we see three times as many railroads in the north as in the south. So a war over Kansas, over the lands in Kansas, over the grain in Kansas becomes a civil war between enslavers on the one side and mm. people who want to sell wheat to the world. The real attraction, the the best time to do that is during the Crimean War, when Russia is kind of out of the picture and wheat prices go up uh, 70%. 
and the U.S. starts being able to sell grain in the 1850s, and that whets their appetite for mm. the idea that grain can be the primary thing that the United States exports. This sort of addictive book of yours, Scott Nelson, Oceans of Grain, reminds me a lot of a book maybe 10 years ago, Sven Beckert, called Empire of Cotton. These two commodities, a food and, and one becomes a fabric, and they're sort of natural history. They move around mm -hmm. the world. They change life. What is in common here, other than taking a commodity and making a universal history out of it? Sven Beckert and I are both kind of motivated by an idea of sort of describing a world system and focusing on the primary commodities that circulate around in those things. Uh, but the uh, developments of it are what make it fascinating. Yes, the right. travel, who wins, who's impoverished by it, etc. Yeah, so what are called the backward and forward linkages of those things, you know, the things that go into producing it, and then the, the further refinement of the raw material that's being exported. That's really a big chunk of the world, you know, the things that go into making mass market goods and the things that are produced by it. I guess my pushback a little bit to Sven's book, which I love, I, it's, I think it's a fantastic book, I teach it actually in my courses, is that... Um, I think that the King Cotton is really only a king in the United States from 1820 to 1860. Hmm. That it's really only in those 40 years, less than the lifetime of a single person, that cotton really defines the United States. And that has a lot to do with the booms and busts. Britain blocking grain exports from the United States after the War of 1812, which leads to the Panic of 1819. When it blocks American grain, the only thing that the U.S. can export after 1819 is cotton, or one of the easiest things to export is cotton. And so cotton has its time in the sun for 40 years, and we have the expansion of slavery in the West, people being sold down the rivers. And then that ends uh, when the war comes and a new dispensation is the world of grain. The people, the states, the regions, the fortunes in these two stories are quite different. Compare and contrast the the wheat farmer and the cotton guy. A wheat farmer, a successful wheat farmer, the people who are primarily responsible for most of the grain that goes into the world, whether it's in Ukraine or Russia or the United States, are people who have a thousand or more acres. So we shouldn't think of family farms. We should think of farms that are maybe owned by a family, but which have lots and lots of day laborers that come in for about a month uh, for the harvest. They're not usually required for the planting. They produce tremendous amounts of grain. They have to basically operate almost as little towns in Russia and Ukraine. They can rely on other networks in, in the United States. That's very different from a slave regime. Similarly, it's about a thousand acres that are the most successful and powerful cotton regimes. But there you have much more attention that's required for the cotton plant, 10 or 11 months. And in a way, it's more suited to a system in which you enslave those workers. You keep them on the plantation and you import food. They become somewhat symbiotic because plantations, believe it or not, rely on a lot of external food. But yeah, so you have a system of basically slave labor in one, slavers or serf labor in Kazakhstan, for example, that produces cotton. Or you have a world in which labor comes in for a month out of the year to engage in the harvest. And that's Trotsky's father, right? This uh -huh. vast landscape in which the laborers in Russia come down to Ukraine and are there for a month for the harvest, and then they head back. That's a very different world. It's a world of what we would now call capitalism. I would argue that the line between cotton 
and wheat is, in a way, the line between slavery and capitalism. Coming up, the foreseeable effects of grain wars, like mass hunger. This is Open Source. I'm asking Scott Nelson for history's wisdom on how and when grain wars end, how bad the damages can get. What's ahead? When does the war in Ukraine end is a, a question that we all want to know. And Russia in, right now is benefiting from the increased price of grain. And there are people who think this war could go on forever, like the Israel-Palestine war or the Indian-Pakistan war. Is that possible? I hope not. <laughs> I, I hate to make predictions about what's going to happen, but I can tell you a little bit about the downstream effects of Please. grain. So the downstream effects of grain are, are important. So once you can reliably transport grain dry. And that's a that's a it's a very old technology, it's an ancient technology. I argue that the story of Demeter and Persephone is really a kind of complex story about how it is that you store grain. But uh, that secret is lost between roughly 400 AD and 1820 AD and it comes back and so basically after 1820 the way that grain is traded around the world is it's dried, poured into ships, delivered to another port, and then unloaded. The ports then benefit by this new grain delivery system that first comes from Russia and then from the United States. That new grain delivery system where the oceans are filled with grain is one in which then the grain is poured into a city, let's say a deep port city like Antwerp or Rotterdam or Liverpool or London. And the grain is ground up the white flour goes to urban consumers. The middlings or the gray brown stuff, the, the gran and germ, is used primarily to feed pigs and beef. And so what you see is after 1820, a sort of explosion of big cities that are grain guzzling cities, I call them. Harvest called them consumption accumulation cities, where this grain goes out and it basically leads to an explosion of urban society. Industrialization then comes after this urban explosion, not right in the city, but in the fringes around it. Lots and lots of workers come to these cities after the 1820s, in large part because food is cheaper in cities than they are in the countryside. And this is, this is a new thing. There's no, nothing like this in the world, really, until this period. And so you get urbanization and industrialization all happening at the same time. But I'd argue that grain is the kind of thing that makes it possible. It's uh, all of this grain that's kind of uh, poured into these cities that makes it possible to build big cities. Now, you know, in the ancient world, Rome, of course, you know, has the yearly arrival of the grain. But uh, this is primarily a market system which pours all this grain into these ports. And so you see grain elevators, you see urbanization, you see industrialization, and you see people fleeing the land, leaving the land as food prices go down, which causes rural land prices to go down. There are other ways to see catastrophes coming out of this. And the problem is not just the grain, it's the fertilizers. Russia and Ukraine produce something like 30% of the world's fertilizers, and mm -hmm. uh, they're critical to the, the world food supply. I'm looking at a newsletter called Euro Intelligencer this week. Wheat is not the catastrophic bit, it's the fertilizers. The explosion of prices in fertilizers, three, four, five, six, eight times the price of these right. necessary things will be unaffordable by farmers in the in the coming season. Mm -hmm. The German newspaper Die Welt cites a former German consumer affairs minister saying, 
3.2 billion people are dependent on their nutrition from the use of those synthetic fertilizers, and he's warning that the world will see the biggest famine in history, a creeping catastrophe. Consider those possibilities. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. If you think about fertilizer, fertilizer is, of course, stored energy, right? It's stored energy that's used for plants, and grain itself is stored energy. It's primarily energy that's used by humans. We've got the sort of energy formula that's you know <laughs> expressed in a way through the growing of food as downstream prices or backstream prices like fertilizer grow then people have to adjust in fact there's been a whole lot of <laughs> turn to uh, manure in much of the plains now because of the very very high price of chemical fertilizers when we think about food as energy it's important to think about who's going to hurt from this i'd argue that the grain is one of these things that's got a very narrow window in terms of time, right? The war started in February 24th, and the only place that could cope with that loss of grain, you know, when grain prices doubled, the only people who could respond to that change quickly enough would be North Dakota and Canada, because they have a short enough growing season so that they can, they can sow in late February and harvest in early spring. No one else in the world can do that just because of the way that most grain overwinters in other parts of the world, uh, northern and southern hemispheres. So we're in a kind of unique period here where grain prices have doubled, but uh, and, and the need for this grain is not uh, three months from now or four months from now, it's now, right? It's, and that's gonna be a real problem in Middle East and North Africa, in Korea, Korea uh, has turned down grain shipments because they're so expensive. And yet that very grain is mostly feed grain that's going to feed pigs and cows in Korea. So the short-term effect of this doubling of grain prices is going to have a kind of bullwhip effect on all the other things, uh, whether it's Nigerian noodles or Middle Eastern flatbread or Egyptian baguettes. All of those things are going to go up in price quite a bit, very, very quickly, uh, because they're pure wheat, more or less. And that's where I worry. Translate that to more prosaic things like employment, like migration, like nationalism, populism. Uh, Yeah. So migration and populism. I mean, I think the, the immediate threat is that as grain prices go up, food prices go up. And people who are in cities who have subsidized, in many cases, subsidized food, uh, the states can't quickly enough adjust to subsidizing food if the, great, the, the raw material price doubles. That leads people to blame the president or the prime minister or the king or whomever in those regions. And that's dangerous. It leads to urban chaos. And then the way in which states now respond to this is not really to concede, but simply to send tanks into those regions. And so that's what we saw in Syria and Egypt and places like that, Morocco, during Arab Spring. And so I worry that we're in for some more of these kinds of uh, problems in the future as people who are living very close to the edge, really on the knife's edge of uh, grain prices are going to be facing problems and no one, no institution is going to be able to respond. The FAO is ordinarily the organization responsible. FAO. Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. This is a kind of global catastrophe that may be beyond their capacity. In fact, they say this. The the director general says this is a huge problem and cannot be fixed quickly. What will we say not so far down the road about the effect of our sanctions on Russia, but on world currencies, on everything? So the sanctions regime is, I think, a good one, and it does hit uh, Russia pretty 
uh, importantly, you know, you can't make cars without a bunch of computers. Uh, you've got, uh, we think of a car as a car, but it's actually filled with lots of little semiconductors. Right. It will hurt Russia, and Russia can't kind of rearm quickly, uh, rebuild its tanks and things like that, given the sanctions regime. But the ruble is not going to fall. And the ruble is not going to fall in any dramatic way because oil and grain are absolutely necessary. And there is so much of it coming out of Russia and Ukraine at this point. It's such an important part mm. of the world economy. You can't just turn that off like a spigot. There are so many people that depend on this. And, and oil may be blocked from, and Germany will hurt from this. But grain is something that's really important for all the regions that are between the Strait of Gibraltar and the Strait of Hormuz, which is the expanse of the old Byzantine Empire. Those regions, which have been eating grain for 2,000 years or more, those regions can't do without Russian and Ukrainian grain. And so this is uh, pretty dire for them. This gets more and more interesting. You're redefining the crisis of the age and putting a new name on it. Even the way we think of the world's divisions we like to call it mm. the democracies and the autocracies. But in fact, I think you conclude that the world is going to be divided between wheat growers and wheat exporters and people who don't have it and who need it, who are therefore, by definition, dependent on Russia. Yes. That, that begins to explain a lot of what we thought of as nice guy countries who declined to apply sanctions against Russia. Exactly. That's exactly right. No, if you look at uh, the UN and where the votes against Russia were, there were a bunch of votes against Russia that didn't support the opposition to Russia, that, that sort of stood by Russia. And those are largely the places that have depended on Russian grain. That's per particularly North Africa and the Middle East. Latin America too, probably? Well, so, to a certain extent, although Argentina is a big grain producer kind of locally, but but yeah, it's it's not a, an autocracy versus uh, democracy. It's not strongman versus Congress. It is really places that are intimately dependent on one another and can't simply turn from one market to another. Now, France has massive grain reserves and France has been opening these up to Egypt and to other previous partners. So there is some hope that, you know, some new alignment can take place. But if you follow <laughs> in the Watergate, we were told to follow the money. I say, if you follow the grain, <laughs> you can see, <laughs> you know, where those folks line up. And it's many of the grain consumers at this point that refuse to entirely shut out Russia because it's dangerous. But nowadays you have to calculate the China piece too. What does China see here? China supposedly has grain reserves, but the condition of them is actually a question mark. The former chief economist for the USDA says that the, the quality of those that grain is not really as good as it ought to be. Uh, China is, of course, half grain, half rice, half wheat, half rice. So the northern part of China is wheat eaters and the southern part of China is rice eaters. Not entirely. Everybody eats lots of things, but... So there, there are differences between those places. China has thought about food security for a long time, and it's big enough that it's possible that it has it or something close to it. But ultimately, if you want to talk about GDP, you want to talk about what economy is going to succeed, you really have to talk about what percentage of household expenditure is on food, right. the average household. And the U.S., it's the lowest, uh, just about the lowest in the world. And in China, it's a little bit higher but not terrible. And uh, in Russia, it's quite high, even though grain comes from Russia. Uh, the expenditure on food is quite high. It's close to 30 or 40%. That's like North Africa levels. So the kind of weakness of a country has a lot to do with how much 
food costs because everything that's left over after you spend money on food and after you spend money on housing, everything left over is a consumer economy. And mm. the U.S. consumer economy has been riding on cheap food for 200 years. If you're thinking of your next meal around the world, and quite seriously, I mean, who are the most insecure people in this new regime? I would say Afghanistan, Haiti, Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Vietnam. Those are places where food insecurity is important. I would also throw in Morocco and Egypt because there are droughts there now. So those are the places that uh, I would worry about. But also South Korea depends a great deal on foreign food. I think in the 90s, everybody was talking about food security. I think uh, what Parvis would say, the person I study, is that we all depend on each other. There's a, there has been an international trade in food and other goods since before there were empires, since before there were states, since before writing, probably. And to be entirely independent is just a fantasy. Uh, we all need each other for food. Mm. And there are places, though, in which um, uh, a, a requirement, a demand that you live on the international market, those are the places I think that we're going to see the most problem, the most difficulty in the next uh, two months. Scott Nelson, with the mind of a grain trader, where are we looking for telltale food riots, for real hunger, for real dangers of starvation in this world? Uh, In Afghanistan, in Haiti, in Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, and Vietnam, those are the places where we are going to see the most danger. North Africa generally is going to be uh, in some difficulty, the Middle East as well. So MENA, you know, what we call Middle East, uh, North Africa, they have always been in the last, you know, 50 or so years, grain importers, and they are both mostly grain eaters. Those are the places that are going to be the most affected by this conflict in Ukraine right now. What does this awareness you've given us of a grain war uh, do to the urgency of stopping the Ukraine war? The biggest problem for, I see, if we think about grain, the biggest problem is where can you grow it? And the biggest problem is, of course, climate change. And that is a problem that we're going to have all have to solve collectively as a planet. And so grain is an, an important issue. Where the Russia-Ukraine war is, uh, my sense is that the solution to this particular problem, if it's if it's solvable, would be something like the NATO or the UN going in and defending a grain transit out of Ukrainian ports to the rest of the world. 120 million to 150 million metric tons of grain that are waiting in Ukraine now to be delivered outwards. It can't go through the Baltic. It can't go through Romania. It's it, it, would, it would make it too expensive to ship out. And so... I think this hanging 120 million metric tons of grain can't be resolved with any other way but an end to the war or a kind of humanitarian corridor that brings the grain out for the rest of the world. Would we all be better off, Scott Nelson, if the world understood that this is what we're in, a grain war? I think it does help us understand this conflict, and it also helps understand why Putin has no desire to end this war necessarily quickly, because as long as Ukrainian grain ports are blocked, then uh, Russian grain exports are carrying on swimmingly coming out of the Black Sea. Russia is effectively benefiting from this conflict. So if we think about it as a grain war, it might help us explain why ports are the real targets here, why ports are so important 
And what's at stake here? Long term, Russia wants to be the only grain exporter on the Black Sea. And that means either destabilizing Ukraine or absorbing it. Scott, I wonder if you've explained the universal crisis, the bad mood the world is in, whether it's the poor horsemen of pandemic and climate Mm. and war and death. To, to be fair, I do think that the things are bad, but I'm, I'm actually one of those glass half full kinds of people in a way, even cool. though I'm describing horrible uh, famines and violent revolutions and things like that. I have reason to hope about the future. All of us are kind of increasingly understanding how we're bound up together in an international way. It makes me th- rethink America, the United States, which has often gotten a pretty black eye for things that it's done in the 20th century, In the 19th century, the U.S. was providing food for Europe. Workers got taller. Things got better in Europe, in part for workers, because food was so cheap. They could spend money on things, other things for their children. It gave workers leisure time, which allowed them to pursue a bunch of things, including radical uh, political ideas. And um, I think uh, returning to that, thinking about how we can all be international, how we can all think about how bound together our world is and how connected in ways that we can't fully understand. And that to me is almost sublime, I have to say, (laughs) almost uh, beautiful. So even in the kind of horrors of what we're facing now and what, what is clearly a food war, just like Arab Spring was, just like the French and the Russian revolutions were, it gives me hope that when we start to sort of see how this world is put together, understand how much we all owe to each other, then um, it, it makes me somewhat hopeful. Scott Nelson, it's still not a pretty picture, but I'm so glad we've changed the frame around it. Thank you so much. And thank you for this irresistible book, Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Chris. It's great talking to you. Scott Reynolds Nelson teaches and writes history at the University of Georgia. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute. Read more from Quincy Fellows at their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org, where you can find Amir Hanjani's article on the war in Ukraine. He sees a commodities super cycle coming and a food crisis approaching. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of smart, independent podcasts, including The Briny, a show from producer Matt Frassica about our connections with the ocean. This week, check out Matt's episode... Turn Down for Whales, which looks at the effects of ocean noise from shipping and oil exploration on underwater life. Find it at thebriny.net. And learn more about all of the Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org.